This morning, our epistle uh, lesson, our New Testament reading, is from Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be reading verses 25, uh, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. If last week we considered Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, which, uh, in which Paul wrote to these Ephesian Christians, former pagan idolaters that they were, as far from Christ as they come, and he wrote to them saying, you've been taught to put on the new self, to live differently as Christians. We might naturally ask, well, could you paint a picture for us, Paul, of what that new life looks like? And that is what we have here this morning, a picture of the new life. So Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we come to a densely packed passage and ask that you would help us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the instruction you give us here, that we would come to it as your beloved children and be filled up to go about our lives as new persons, living the new life, the life that you've given us. We ask that you would help us in all these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I read this passage this week and considered it, a phrase came to mind, a phrase that perhaps you've used or have heard said. The phrase is, the proof is in the pudding. Perhaps you've used this phrase, and I'd have to ask you to be honest. Don't actually tell me out loud, but does that phrase make sense to any of you? I mean, what is, is, is there something hidden in the pudding that we're supposed to understand? The proof is in the pudding. I, never understood this, so naturally I, I googled it. As it turns out, the, the proper phrase is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And the phrase dates back at least a few hundred years to a time when pudding did not refer to the snack pack treat. The, you know, the chocolate or vanilla little sugar-filled thing but pudding referred to what was essentially a giant sausage dish. 
compaction of mixed of meat and grains and spices packed tightly into some sort of casing, usually the lining of a cow's intestinal tract or something, a sausage, basically. And so it was appropriate back then to say that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, you can tell if the pudding is any good only by eating it because Lord knows what's in it. But this phrase expresses something, something very basic, that you can know the value and, or worth of something in a way only by using it, by testing it. Does it do what it says it does? Is it workable? Does it deliver? And friends, this morning, in a real sense, we're considering the fact that the proof of the Christian faith is in the living. At the beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul admonished the Ephesian Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. He suggests there, and we find here, that the gospel of its very nature begets a new way of life. And to this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been describing why it is that the gospel begets a new life. But here, this morning, we have described how the Christian life is to be lived. And what stands out to me, first of all, if it, maybe it stood out to you, is that it doesn't seem all that unique. It doesn't seem all that novel. The instructions here, I mean, look at them. Tell the truth. Don't be overly angry. Don't steal. Be generous. Don't be a jerk. That's basically what verse 29 says. Be kind. Love. A cynic might walk in the room this morning and wonder, having paid attention to this passage, these people really needed the Bible to tell them all of that? It's not that unique. It's, it doesn't take shape in a unique area, a unique sphere of life. It's not just a life that takes shape in the mahogany-clad halls of academia or in the sanctuaries of Christian churches, but it takes shape in ordinary daily life. And it's not a unique set of demands. The gospel calls us to a life living out the things that everyone wants. But that all of us, if we're honest, we don't see them on display in the world around us and we struggle to live them out in our own lives. So this morning, and I really wrestled with how to approach this passage, we could just go through the list of commands and talk about each one of them. That would be a good sermon, appropriate. But this morning, I want to ask the question, how is the Christian life unique and powerful? Because it is. There are things in this passage that point to something unique and powerful. There is passage for good living that most of us lack, but that this provides. So what do we need to see? How is the Christian life unique and powerful? Well, it's unique and powerful in three ways. We have to see three things here this morning. First of all, the connection of the Christian life. Secondly, the pattern of the Christian life. And finally, the promise. So the connection, the pattern, and the promise. 
First of all, the connection of the Christian life. At the beginning of this passage, there's a word that's easy to gloss over. But we gloss over it to our peril. And I know that sounds extreme, but I mean it. It's a common word, and it's a linchpin in the passage. If it's not in place, then the whole paragraph we just read falls apart. And since that whole paragraph we just read is about the Christian life, how to live a good life, I would suggest that if this word is not in place in your heart, your whole Christian living falls apart. The word is therefore. And to use an overused and tired preacher's quip, whenever you come to the word, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? First of all, therefore, of course, means that there is something prerequisite to the Christian life. There's something that must first be said and grasped before we can enter into the new life of obedience to the commands of God. There's something to which the commands must be connected. What is that something? Well, in a sense, just in the narrative structure of the letter to the Ephesians, it's all of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and a half that we've been considering over the past 10 weeks now. We could sum up everything that we've seen here like this. God has accomplished redemption for us in Jesus Christ. And he has applied it to us through his spirit. God has done it. God is the subject of nearly every verse in Ephesians 1 through 3. In fact, somebody should check me on this, not right now, but maybe after church. I think God might be the subject of all of the verbs there, of all of the actions done. It's all about what God has done in Christ for us and how that gets applied to us through his spirit. But here, Paul summarizes that great therefore, everything that he's already said that then leads into this passage with a quick little phrase. He says, having put away falsehood. And it sort of looks as if this little phrase only applies to the first command about speaking the truth. But I think it applies to the whole passage, to the whole of the Christian life. Because the word translated falsehood here is literally the lie. And when the Apostle Paul uses the lie in his writings, he does so to highlight what is fundamentally wrong with human beings. What is our fundamental problem? In Romans 1.25, he said, we have exchanged the truth about God for the lie. It is the lie of the garden. The lie spoken there. Did God really say? No, no. If you eat of this fruit, if you disobey God's commands, you'll be like him. You'll be able to decide what's right and what's wrong for you. You'll have a fuller life than the life God is offering. That's the lie. And Paul says here that we only enter the Christian life by first putting away the lie and entering into the truth of what God has done in Christ. That has to come first. It is prerequisite. 
Unfortunately, most of us think that prerequisites are boring and unnecessary. Um, I was a pretty average student in high school, and I could, care, could not have cared less about the classes that I was taking. I, I took some AP courses and things like that, but regardless of my capacity, I never really applied myself very much. I was eager to get past all those courses and onto real life. Early on in high school, I thought that real life was going to be lived on the baseball field. Later on, I knew that I was called to ministry, and I thought real life would be lived, again, outside of the classroom, in the church. I figured, why bother with all that stuff? When I got to college, it was no different. I was excited to be at a Bible school where I could be studying scripture and theology, but even there, you had these things called prerequisites. You had to take them, and I was glad when I learned about this thing called clepping. Some of you know what that is. Clepping, the CLEP exam program, college level exam program, where you could take tests in about an hour's time in lieu of the courses themselves, and that schools would accept these tests, some of them. At least my Bible college did. So I clepped everything that I could because prerequisites are a bore. Some of us feel that way about everything that's come before the commands. I think that one of the challenges or pushbacks that I've gotten most frequently, just as a Christian, not even as a pastor, to the gospel, to the Christian faith is, I don't need all that stuff. I don't need all that religious stuff. What really matters is living a good life. I don't need all that stuff for living a good life. Why bother? This why bother attitude, but that's not the kind of prerequisite that the gospel is. It's maybe more like the prerequisite of being at least 300 pounds to be an offensive lineman in the NFL. <laughs> or of having good eyesight to be a pilot. Better yet, it's, it's more like the prerequisite of having deep love for your children in order to be a good parent. Therefore says that there has to be something in your life that fills you up and that you have that something in what God has done, in the good news that comes before the good commands. That before there is a reorientation of your ordinary daily life, before new living comes, comes a new status, a new standing that you receive from God. Good news that he has taken away the lie, the lie of independence from God. He has paid for all of the suffering that comes of that lie and welcomes you back. You have to be filled up by this. You have to embrace this before you can enter the commands. And it has to be embraced in first in time. That is, you, you need to be converted to really enter into and run in the way of these command, commandments. But it also has to be first in your thought, in your thinking, daily. And some of us struggle with that. Some of us try to live on the command side of therefore only unconnected, disconnected from the good news, from this side of the therefore, 
all the riches that are already ours in Christ. And we grow tired. Our hearts run dry like rivers whose source has run dry. We are exhausted, bitter, and the, the liveliness of this life that we just read about isn't there. We're just trying harder and harder and harder, and it's exhausting. So I'd ask you this morning, has the gospel bothered you lately? Has the gospel troubled the waters in your heart? Can you be bothered by this news first? That's the only way, the only proper way to enter the Christian life. That it is connected to the gospel. And that the gospel then gives birth to this new way of life. It calls us into it. That's the second part of therefore. That not only must we enter the commands through the gospel, but through the gospel we must enter the commands because we have a God who has loved us this much, who has redeemed us in this way, who wants to change us and bring us through the gospel into Christian living. Others of us live only on, try to live only on the gospel side of therefore, and we never enter into the command side. We don't want a God who tells us what to do. And if those of us who live only on the command side are like rivers that run, run dry, then those of us that try to live only on the gospel side are like those floating aimlessly in the ocean, going nowhere. This actually distorts the gospel because the gospel tells us that we have a father, not a grandfather in heaven. You know, the thing about grandfathers is that they let the kids do whatever they want, <laughs> right? They give them too much candy, they let them stay up too late, and that's great. But we have a heavenly father who calls us into a better way of life. So feel that connection. The gospel moves you into the commands of God. If you are stifling the commands of God, trying to cut them off and float aimlessly in this affirming love that asks nothing of you, then you're cutting yourself off from the great change that God wants to bring about in your life, from the full life that he longs as your father to produce in you. There is a connection that must be felt for all of us before the commands can be understood and obeyed. That's the first thing that makes the Christian life unique and powerful, a connection. The second thing we see in this passage that runs throughout the whole passage is a pattern, the pattern of the Christian life. When we look at the list of commands here, we see this constant dynamic, putting off sin and putting on righteousness, holiness. In the paragraph just before this, Paul put it as putting off the old self and putting on the new self. The dynamic of the Christian life is the dynamic of constantly saying no to sin and yes to the life of righteousness. And the language here of putting off and putting on is the language of changing your clothes because you've got a new identity. When my wife came into my life in high school, um, but still to this day, I got new clothes. Literally, guys, just this morning, 
we were texting about uh, new clothes that I might need because I asked her what tie to wear and she's like, she's got to you know, help me with that stuff. A new identity comes with a new outfit and so we have to put off the old and I've thrown away a lot of shirts over the past few years and in with the new. So first you put off the old. Look at the, the list here. Having put away the lie or falsehood, speak the truth. Be angry and do not sin, saying no to a sinful anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clander and slammer be put away from you, along with all malice. The first step in the pattern of daily Christian living as those who belong to God and stand in the gospel is daily, constant repentance. Not repeating the act of our conversion when we first believed, but repeating the pattern that we continually put off those things, those sins that cling and that hold us down, like weights, which if we hold, hold on to them, hinder our ability to run in the way of God's commandments. This is a universal summons. It's not just for the particularly sinful among us that need to stop very obvious and flagrant sinning. It's for all of us. And it is a daily summons that we continually take up our cross and seek the ways in which we are living out of the lie of independence from God and not living as his children. A universal and daily summons. Secondly, it is putting on the new. That's the second half of the pattern of the Christian life. Putting on the new. The Christian life calls us beyond just like acquiescing to the demands of God. We say, okay, I'll stop doing that stuff. Fine. Then let me be. The Christian life calls us into a delight in the commands of God, in the ways of God, to hungering and thirsting for being like our Father. And so in the passage we see, not just that we put away the lie, but we speak the truth, even hard truths, even when it costs us something. Not just don't be like raging all the time in your anger, but have your anger rightly directed. Be angry about the things that God is angry about. And check yourself constantly whether your anger is justified. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Not just don't steal, but do good work. Work for the good of others. And work that you might be able to give to those in need. Not just don't be a jerk in verse 29, not just don't badmouth others. But look around you and seek ways to build others up. And do you see that in all of these things, the operative principle is really this that we read in 5.1. Be imitators 
of God. Be imitators of God. In all these things, we reflect the love and grace of God that has been given to us in the gospel. If our hearts are filled up by that, then we want to reflect that in our lives. That's the dynamic. Putting off the old, putting on the new, and putting on the new as well is a universal summons. It's not just for those who are particularly rich to be generous. It's not just for those who are particularly well-educated to speak the truth or who are called to preaching ministry to speak the truth. It's not just for the counselors to be patient and to speak hard truths. It's for all of us, and it is a daily summons, a call to live up to this life in God. This life is his beloved children. So we walk the Christian life daily in this pattern, putting off the old and putting on the new, never growing tired of seeking out and killing sin when it rears its ugly head in our lives and seeking ways that we can reflect the character of God. The last thing that we see about this Christian life as it's laid out before us here that makes it unique and powerful is the promise of the Christian life. The promise. The promise is that being, that living out the new self, being a new person who lives like this doesn't depend all on you. In the paragraph we read last week, we read in, the, in verse 24, in chapter 4, verse 24, that we are to put on the new self created past tense, already created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self has already come. God, in fact, has become in Christ the new self. He has brought it into the world and won it for you and given it to you as a gift. Remember also Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, right, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ, again, past tense, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only has God become the new self in Jesus Christ, God, through Christ and through his spirit, has given you the new self. And then in our passage this morning, we read in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This echoes chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But not only did God in Christ become the new self, not only has God given you the new self already, past tense, but God by his Spirit has promised to perfect you as a new person. 
You have been sealed irrevocably by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That God will make us what we were made to be. We are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Do you hear the illusion there? The illusion to creation? The reference to who we were made to be as God's image bearers created in his image and likeness? God is at work to restore that in you. To recreate that in you. And as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This new life comes with a promise that it does not depend all on you. It's not an if you build it, he will come call. If you live like this, then you'll get that. It's a promised life. It's a call to live out who you already are and who you one day will be. A creature, a child of God, far more glorious then than you could ever conceive now. You will be that one day. It's guaranteed. So live into it. Live into it. Stop living in the commands without the gospel. Or stop floating in the gospel without the commands. Make that connection and walk daily, putting off the old, the life of the lie, putting on the new, the likeness of God that he's given to you and that he will complete in you. Friends, have you been bothered by the gospel to move into this new life? And are you drawn by that promised day when it's brought to completion? to start acting like those loved by God now, to be imitators of him. Lean into the gospel, into that connection, and walk in newness of life. Let's ask God to help us as we try to do that, as we go about our weeks. Father, this morning we thank you for your commands. We thank you that you are a God who loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. We thank you that you have given us this promise of, your, of being like you, of bearing your likeness, of one day being restored, and that you are at work in us now to do it. Would you continue to work in us and among us? Would you help us to see and experience Christ who is at work in and through us. We ask in his name, amen.